It's hard to think of a more maligned element of the college admissions process than standardized tests, and justifiably so, increasingly, thanks in no small part to the work of my guest today who has spent years using them, analyzing them, and critiquing them, to put it mildly. While our talk today is centered on the concept of test-optional admissions, we wind our way around a lot of topics, including trees, the value of making big career moves, and how to best pronounce his name. And this is my 40th episode in the year where I'll cross into the land of the 40-year-olds myself. I'm glad for this one to feature Vice Provost for Enrollment Management at Oregon State University, John Bakkenstead. Yeah. So okay. it's not Beethoven, it's Bakkenstead. Bakkenstead. Beckenstead. Birkenstedt. Bakkenstead. Birkenstedt. They say Bakkenstead. I really don't care. Uh, you call me whatever you want. Welcome to The Crush. Hey, hooray, 40 episodes of this somehow got made, you guys. And uh, thanks to all of you who've been here for any or all of them. I know there are fewer of the former than the latter, but I'm happy to have any of you checking this thing out whenever and however it happens. I hope you share it around with people if you like it and send me a note if you want to. My DMs are open on Twitter at CrushPod. I also have a website, crushpodcast.com, where I dress up the front page with an image of my guest's alma mater, which I probably don't have the rights to use, and I'm always waiting for somebody to tell me that, but nobody ever does, so whatever. It's cool. I'll keep doing it. Uh, It was a longer hiatus over the fall than I am comfortable with in terms of getting episodes out, so I'm going to try to make up for that as much as I can here now that I am over the hump and into a new year, and uh, I hope you'll stay tuned for all that stuff in in the not-too-distant future. Now, this interview, this one right here, is Instant Crush Cornerstone content, you guys. This talk is fun because uh, for a lot of reasons, but I think it puts a voice to somebody that most people who know John really only know from reading his words, whether they be his own via his very popular and pretty essential blog uh, full of not just words, but data visualizations that everybody uh, pretty readily steals for presentations across the uh, uh, admissions landscape, uh, or words uh, on Facebook where he co-moderates an enormous group of thousands of admissions professionals, or on Twitter, or in the pages of any number of publications, from the Chronicle of Higher Education to Inside Higher Ed to the goddang New York Times, the gray lady, the paper of record. He's in there. It seems he's maybe even a little tired of being the go-to guy on today's topic, as he pointed out in what approximates as full-blown a treatise on testing as one might want to read, titled Some Final Thoughts on the SAT and the ACT, which I linked to here in the show notes. And in fact, I strongly recommend that you you read that, uh, maybe even before listening to this if you can. But uh, if not, you know, no big deal, but but definitely make sure you check it out. As he put in this post that I'm recommending, he writes, I'm just frankly tired of explaining the same stuff all the time, which on the one hand, to paraphrase James Brown, you got to pay the cost to be the boss, which in many ways he is when it comes to this topic. And I mean, he's super good at it. He's pretty good at it, I think. Also, as evidenced by his presence on this podcast, he hasn't until the release of his very terminal-sounding blog post, ever said no to anyone, it would seem, who asks him to opine on these things. He's a giver, in other words. I've approached the concept of standardized admissions tests on this podcast a lot of times, and I'm really glad to be able to get the thoughts of this particular leader just as he pushes his own new home at Oregon State University, go Beavers, to move to drop tests themselves in their admissions process, and also as he approaches his retirement on the matter of talking about testing. I'm honored. The last 15 minutes of our talk deals with some changes that were made to the guiding principles of our professional organization, the National Association of College admissions counseling, which many viewed as particularly seismic uh, changes that were made to avoid an existentially expensive process of litigation with the good old Department of Justice. So we do talk about that as well towards the end of the interview. I managed to nail John down for an hour in September in an empty conference room at the annual NACAC conference in Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. 
So are you going to ask me any uh, stupid questions like my favorite fruit or anything that I need to get ready for? <laughs> I mean, you know, you can decide if you think they're stupid. Uh, <laughs> That's a stupid question. Yeah. Cut it out. Yeah. <laughs> um, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks. When did you get into town? I got into Chicago on Wednesday night. My wife and I drove down here um, Thursday morning and uh, been in town ever since. How long was the drive from Chicago? Uh, it depends on. Are you counting the time you have to turn around because someone forgot their battery charger for the computer? Who's or? The, is that you? You no, did that? No, I you would did never that. do that. You no, forgot. I didn't. I didn't. I so you're my charger. throwing your wife under the <clears throat> Pretty much. rental car. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. Well, it's our Volvo. So oh, Okay. Yeah. So She's um, still in Chicago. No, uh, she's living in Chicago, but she's down here with me, yeah. Because you're in Corvallis, Oregon now. I am. It's um, It's been the best move of my life, and I would never, ever, ever trade it. And I'm, I'm just going to say to anybody who's thought about whether it's good to move or not, um, take the leap. You'll be thrilled with it. How do you know that it's the best move of your life? You've only been there for about 15 minutes. Um, I'm a quick judger. Myers-Briggs, I'm a J, okay. so I make decisions. I'm really shocked quickly. to learn that about you. Hard, I know. It's, you'd think I'd be a lacy, flowing, lily um, guy like Crosby. Is that Crosby, Stills and Nash? Lacey Lilting Lily. Is that, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, one of the things is um, if you give me a lyric from a song, I, I, a real song, I mean, not the stuff you can I would really to. like to see you um, do the young, like come in and do the fourth part harmony on that one. Can you get, how would that, I mean. Uh, let me squeeze here and see if I can get, no, I, sorry, I can't do it today. <laughs> Uh, maybe later on, you know, after uh, you you do some bourbons and we get to the karaoke bar. Did you bring bourbon? No, I don't. I mean, oh, that's the hell with that. Then I think they have it out. You know, there's a water fountain, and then right next door the, yeah. to it, there's a little bourbon fountain. Sure. So I just you know, it comes out of the ground here. Yeah. The yeah. answer to your original question is it's about five hours from Chicago to Louisville. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, how are you finding Oregon, my home state? Um, I just let the airlines take me there, and they find it. Jesus Christ. <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it, well, you know, this is based on the famous question of the Beatles in 1964. Um, how did you, how are you finding New York? And he said, we went to Greenland and turned left. Turned left, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, uh, yeah. I wanted to just tee you up there for that one. Thank you. I mean, um, so, so far, we've gotten a Beatles reference and a Crosby, Stills, and Nash reference. I think we're going to get a little Uzi Vert reference in here later. <laughs> I, I can just tell. I thought, I, I think Oregon is spectacular. I mean, people, I'm, I'm really surprised, you know, every place I've lived, you say where you're from and someone, oh, I've been there. And, and the number of people who said, I've never been to Oregon is astonishing to me. And I don't know why that is. It's, it's not really on the way to anything, you know, if you're like right. substantially east of it. Right. I mean, and there's mountains all around, so mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to get to. But, um, you know, we're, we're not far from the ocean. We're not far from the high desert. We're not far from the mountains, um, and there are really a, a lot of really big trees everywhere. Yeah. So if you love trees, it's great. And, you know, it's it's a wine country right in the Willamette Valley there. Um, a lot of grapes growing along the highway when you drive down from Portland. Now, did you have to learn that it wasn't Willamette? No, um, I know someone, a recent guest on your podcast has some difficulty, but I've known Willamette, damn it, since <laughs> like 1983, I think. All right, good. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's cool. I mean, it's, it's, it's very cool for me that you're there. It's where my grandparents went to college. Right. It's where my, you know, I had an uncle that went there. My, um, my grandmother was a Tridel and she majored in home economics. And uh, my grandfather was uh, an ATO. Okay. He majored in engineering, and then he went to go work for the phone company. And together, uh, they were uh, in Iran helping the Shah install uh, his phone lines. And then there was a bit of a revolution yeah. that occurred, and they were on one of the last planes out of Tehran. I've actually watched that documentary. Have you really? It was your grandparents, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a fascinating story. It was your grandmother mostly telling the story. If yeah, I right. I sent you the thing from the, uh, the yeah. Oregonian put it together. Yeah, It's amazing. You know, um, one of the things I regret most in life was my freshman year of college, 1977, there were a couple international students on our floor. One of them was Iranian, and I can't remember where the other two were from. But, um, you know, you're 18 years old, and you say, what a tremendous opportunity to learn about a different person, a different culture, a different way of life. And I just completely didn't take advantage of it because, you know, there was pizza and beer everywhere. Mm. And so... Um, 
uh, still a great regret of mine. And so whenever I get a chance now to talk to somebody from another country, another culture, I'll always spend at least a couple minutes with that person just to sort of figure out um, how do you see things? Can you teach me something that maybe um, I haven't been aware of or enlighten me in some ways? And it's really, it's a, a thrill to be able to do that. Yeah. What are, I mean, now that you're, you know, Oregon State, very different kind of a place in DePaul. Um, what are some of the things that, I mean, you were at DePaul for 17 years. It's a yeah. long time to be at a place, you know, and then to go and shift gears like this, I guess, what are some of the charges that you're tasked with, you know, as a new, you know, enrollment manager at a, at a, at a place like this? Um, what are the things you gotta you gotta you gotta work out? Well, so it's sort of my perception, and this is not an official university stance, but from talking to people at public universities, it seems that you know what public universities have had going for them for a long time is a lot of state support, which means they were extraordinarily high quality and very reasonable and very low cost. And um, declining state support means it's harder to do both of those things equally well, and so. Public institutions have never had to do enrollment management the way a private tuition-driven institution has. And so um, the ironic thing is even against that backdrop, Oregon State has grown so fast and so dramatically over the past 10 years that um, no one, you know, faced with the possibility of maybe investing more money in enrollment management, I think the natural question would have been, why would we do that? We're growing, we're getting bigger, everything seems to be looking good. Um, but now enrollment is flattening out and we're looking at demographics and we're still, bless us, not recovered from the uh, recession in 2007. Mm -hmm. And so it's, um, it's getting harder to balance all those pieces of the equation. And so... Um, there's a couple things I think that I've been charged with doing. And I have a, a great provost as a boss who basically lets me tell him what I need to be doing. And so that's, I mean, how could you ask for anything? Yeah, that's that? great work if you can get it. Yeah. Well, um, you know, so he's really smart and seems to be very trusting. And I think um, people have put a lot of faith in the effort to think about enrollment management differently. And so um, things like analytics, things like predictive modeling, things like um, a different way of analyzing and utilizing uh, financial aid most effectively, um, buying and hooking up and configuring a CRM, um, thinking about diversity in the broadest sense. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the state of Oregon is very different than the city of Chicago. Yep. And so I've never in my life been in a, so many meetings with white men, nothing mm -hmm. but white men, you mm -hmm. know, or I have in my life, but not in the last 17 years at least. Yeah, right. And so, um, you know, helping a university see why that might not necessarily be good is, I think, an important part of what I'm doing and why I'm there. Mm -hmm. I'm here to, to, to talk to you for, you know, a lot of, I mean, you just got so much to say, John. I mean, that's, you know, it's like, where do I start? But I'm particularly interested in your, your history relative to the concept of, of uh, removing standardized test scores as an element of yeah. applying to college. And, you know, you did this in 2012 at DePaul. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've now gone to Oregon State. They had to kind of know what they were getting, uh, you know, in terms of uh, somebody who has a, 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 a pretty well-formed opinion on the matter. Yeah. And um, uh, so I guess what has been the level of communication there about that to the extent that you can talk about it? Yeah, well, I can talk about a, a lot. Uh, so when we did it at DePaul, there were really, and, and um, I think my thinking has refined itself a little bit over the past few years. But um, when we did it at DePaul, there were really two reasons. The first is the social justice issue. And we were getting um, we were getting more applications, and the stress always is then to get better. And when you want to get better, what you start doing is lopping off the students at the bottom. And test scores give you a really easy justification to lop off the bottom of the class. Bottom of the sort of academic excellence uh, register or something. Or well, you know. Um, Robert Sternberg, who was a professor at Yale and then the provost at, I think, Oklahoma State and then went to be a president maybe at Wyoming or Utah, mm -hmm. um, has this really good article in Inside Higher Education or an opinion piece. And one of the things he talks about, uh, the reason people like standardized tests is the illusion of precision. 
And so um, it's really easy to look at a number that's a 16 and say that's lower than a 20. So clearly the 20 is better than the 16. Mm -hmm. um, but beyond those sort of injustices, you know, um, there is uh, there is an amazing correlation between, or let me say it's not a correlation. The distribution of test scores by income is um, perfectly stepwise with income. So um, if you look from left to right, I can show you the distribution. It's lowest income, second lowest income, you know, third lowest income, all the way up to highest income, and it's perfectly stepwise. Right. So. Um, you know, if you're talking about access and attainment and all the things that we'd like to talk about, looking at test scores is going to limit who you look at if you place a lot of credence in test scores or your institution puts a lot of its personality into what our average test score is. Mm -hmm. So there's that. There's all sorts of issues with ethnicity that are similar. Um, you know, I can tell you from looking at the ACT data that this is sort of ex an exact number, something like um, 18% of all African-American test takers are under 16 on the ACT and less than $24,000 in family income. So when you talk about those students who are high income and high tests, the, the places the uh, Harvards and Princetons and Yales like to think about, um, it is such an incredibly tiny sliver of African-American enrollment that if you're trying to design a system that keeps black kids and brown kids out of selective institutions, that is a test you'd probably um, create. So there's that social justice issue. There's the second issue, or a parallel to that, I think, is the test prep issue. And we know students with more resources have greater access to test prep. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, anyone at the college board or ACTU says test prep doesn't work is just lying to themselves. They know it does, and it does. Um, including their own products now, apparently, Khan Academy and ACT Academy. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but the second one is a sort of statistical look at it. And if you try to predict freshman level grades, looking at everything you have in your uh, application folder, you'll find that you can do that with some very imprecise level of precision, maybe 30% of variance um, in freshman level grades is explained by all the things you collect at the application. So it's not completely fair to say admissions is a crapshoot, but it is really hard to predict human behavior. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you create your models and you get 30% and then you run those models again and you take tests out, you still get something like 28%. So the unique contribution to explaining freshman grades from an ACT or an SAT is about 2%. And that's almost nothing. So is this, I mean, is, is you say, you know, you get, I mean, is this you at DePaul sitting looking at your numbers and doing this? I mean, is, or is this a, is this a sort of a more, a more, you know, are we able to extrapolate that sort of further across, you know, the, the, the landscape? Yeah, of, you know, I know Georgia, University of Georgia has done studies. Um, uh, Saul Geyser at um, UC Berkeley has been the leading proponent of standardized testing for a long time. He's been doing studies back to 2000 on the old, the kind of old, and the new SAT, and is finding you know almost identical two percent numbers. Mm -hmm. um, it's really tiny. Uh, a couple reasons because SAT and GPA are largely the same thing for about seventy percent of students. So it's no surprise when you double count something, it doesn't contribute to your understanding at all. Um, and most studies I've seen make that case that it's somewhere in that percentage range. And uh, do you have, what degree of faith do you have that schools that use these scores are necessarily doing this, this, this work to kind of understand the uh, extent to which it's, it's doing what they think it ought to be doing for them in their process? Well, uh, Joe Suarez, who wrote SAT Wars, um, wrote another book called, I think it's called The Price of Privilege or The Power of Privilege. I can't remember in which he went into the Yale archives and found a memo from 1965 where the Institutional Research Office was responding to a request um, that was budget-driven. And Yale knew that at that time they could have no more than 40% of their students on financial aid in order to balance their budget. And the IR office essentially said, the best way to ensure that we have a high-income student body is to require the SAT for admission. Uh, and so people have known this for a long time. Um, it's no surprise to anybody who's done the numbers 
Um, any statistician who's ever done this research is not surprised by it. Um, it's just that that there are public relations expenses and um, uh, reputational costs and other sorts of things that happen when you stop requiring an SAT. People think it's an intelligence test, and it's not. So you've been you were at DePaul um, seventeen years. Twenty twelve was, if my math is right, seven years ago. Yeah, which means that you were there for a while before you got religion on this. Um, sort of. Um, we actually started the discussions in about 2008. Okay. Uh, so I had been there since 20, 2002. And in 2008, um, we started looking at some something, of the work of Bill Sedlicek on non-cognitive variables in the admissions process. And I don't know if you know Sedlicek. He wrote um, Beyond the Big Test. Uh, his work was with African-American male students at the University of Maryland in the 70s who were less than 20 years removed from their active discrimination policy. Mm -hmm. In the late 50s, Maryland still was not admitting African-American students mm -hmm. on purpose, mm -hmm. not admitting them. And so he tried to identify the characteristics, uh, personality, uh, motivation, other sorts of things that determine what makes one student from another successful. And he came up with about eight variables. And we started taking a look at trying to require short essays that would try to get at that information. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a two or three year pilot program. And we found, unfortunately, that um, they gave us a little bit of insight into how well a student was going to do, but not much. Um, and so the next step was to think about, well, if we're going to get rid of the, if we're going to keep this, the what we call the diamond essays, the four short uh, essay responses, um, is it necessary to have the standardized tests in there? And then we talked about equity, and we really started talking about it when we, my colleague and I were having an argument over a student from a IB school in Chicago whose native language wasn't English. Her test scores were 16 on the ACT. She had a 4.0 at this school. Parents didn't speak English at all, and we had denied her admission. My colleague came in and said, well, the counselor at this school says we should admit her. And I said, well, okay, that's fine, but the counselor doesn't tell us who to admit. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you know, students like this do just fine here. And I said, what do you mean? Well, we've got all this research, and he showed me all this stuff. And it was, it was astonishing to see these students with really low scores in a program like an IB program who um, – you know, probably didn't speak Spanish, English at home, had Spanish or sometimes Polish as the first language. Um, and they graduated at almost identical rates to our students who were wealthy, white, um, suburban kids from outside Chicago. And it was really eye-opening to me because if you take away the test scores, everything else they've done, the classes they've taken, the grade point average, activities, um, all make them look a lot like the students at those suburban, wealthier, whiter, privileged schools. Mm -hmm. It was a test score that made me at that time think, well, there must be something that says the student isn't college ready. So it was, it was kind of getting religion, but it was really looking at the numbers and then thinking more deeply about the origins of the test, the standardized testing, how it came about, um, why people decided to implement them in the first place, why people decided to get rid of them, and how it's all turned out fine. Um, it was interesting this afternoon to hear David Coleman say our test optional partners, um, at, you know, in university admissions. So it was it was a remarkable comment coming from someone <laughs> at the College Board. Mm -hmm. What about this the, the the argument that there's you know rampant grade inflation you know across the nation and that there's you know that that the yeah. you know we know that there is just always going to be a normal distribution of scores you know with every right. sitting of the exam and therefore the standardization of it is something that can kind of control for GPAs within schools and districts sure. and states that 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 might be a little bit inflated. Well, uh, I think or a lot of it. Yeah, I think there's some logical and statistical fallacies going on when you talk about that. First of all, if you read Paul Tuff's new book, he will tell you and show you and hey, you're in that book. I'm in that book. Yeah, I'd read it anyway if I were you. Um, <laughs> he he shows that the College Board research actually 
does not support the conclusion that they went public with. You know, their conclusion was test inflation is hurting low-income kids because wealthy kids are experiencing more test inflation. In fact, the data didn't show that, not at all. Um, so there's that. Test inflation is not an issue, I don't think, because two th one thing that happens is people say, well, grades are inflating, so there must be just grade inflation. It could be that kids are smarter and kids are learning more. And there's a difference between an assessment-based test, like a biology exam in 11th grade, and a standardized test. The, the biology test in 11th grade is the kind of test that if everybody studies really hard and learns the material, everybody can get an A, and that's considered successful. A standardized test is norm-referenced, so you will always... What does that mean? Well, that means that you will always get a normal distribution, that there will always be you know, a big, fat middle, just the bell-shaped curve. There will be students at the low end and students at the high end. That's the way the test is designed. It's a sorting mechanism. It's not designed to measure achievement. It's designed to sort you on some other variable. Mm -hmm. So, um, And what's more interesting is that if you look at test scores over the past 15 years, there's been far more test inflation at the upper end than there has been grade inflation in the high schools. And so, um, you know, this is before you even think about um, all the cost of standardized testing, both financial and opportunity cost. Um, I knew someone who worked in the city of Chicago public schools who said 16% of his time was spent preparing for standardized tests. Um, and then you think about all the other costs, you know, how politicians use them inappropriate to compare school districts and how funding um, streams are based on schools that perform better on standardized tests mm -hmm. and how um, district administrators get paid bonuses because their standardized test scores go up and it's just, it's not what those tests were made for and it's it shouldn't be something that's used in the way you know in the way it is not even discounting the effect of what journalists do with it you know, just completely misinterpreting standardized test scores and what it means. And the best colleges or the best high schools in our state are these because guess what? They have the highest test scores and they always, always, always end up being the wealthiest. What does, can, what can you tell us about how the, how are the test scores used in the U.S. News and, and World Report rankings? Um, I, I don't know the actual weighting because frankly, I don't give a damn about the U.S. News and World Report rankings. I know there are people that um, try to hack the, um, the algorithm that right. ranks people. And this is something I don't care about. Yeah. I mean, you know, the greatest example of why they're, they're crap is, was the year that Caltech was first. U.S. News and World Report sold a lot fewer magazines that year, and they changed the algorithm, and Caltech wasn't first anymore. You know, next the year after that, it was Harvard or Princeton or Yale or one of those schools. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, these are people ranking the institutions that have absolutely no experience in higher education. Beyond that, I understand why they do what they do, because higher education is really reluctant to talk about itself and assess itself. So someone did it and made some money on it, but they're just crap. Everyone knows they're crap. But this is, isn't this, you know, really at the end of the day, the reason a lot of other kinds of schools that are featured pretty prominently at the at or near the top of those lists are, are, are reluctant to um, go the path that you did at DePaul. Well, uh, what's interesting is if, you, um, if you're obsessed with tests and obsessed with your ranking, um, taking a certain percentage of your class test optional is probably good because I don't know what the figure is, but it's something like 30% at U.S. News and World Report. If you get above that, they will start penalizing you in the rankings. Right. So I think that um, was mentioned at least in the, in, the, in the book, but also in the article in the New York Times. That yeah. That's what happened at Trinity, right? That they... I, I think so, yeah. yeah. And so I think Wake Forest is also past that threshold, and, and they don't care either. God mm -hmm. bless them. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you're only taking 15 or 20% of your class test optional, you're not going to be penalized, and you're probably going to report higher scores. But Bob Morse says that it's really inconsequential because it's a tiny sliver of the um, overall ranking. I need to cough. <coughs> you can cut that out, I hope. <laughs> I'm leaving it in. Yeah, great. Um, what are the, like, uh, are, are there any legitimate concerns that 
you know, a, a, an enrollment manager who, who is contemplating this move uh, to a test optional policy really needs to kind of weigh all other things being equal, assuming that they're doing their due diligence and, you know, talking to people who've yeah. gone through it and the best practices are understood. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't get the question. Are, are there, there any? Are there? Yeah, like what are the what are the kind of concern? The, are there valid concerns? Um, you know that they need to that they need to take into account. I mean, if it's, and valid, I guess, is sort of a obviously a really you know loose you know term. But if you're like, yeah. obviously, if you're gonna if you're gonna dive in the rankings, like you have to maybe potentially right. be willing to do that. You know, and yeah, well, I, I think you know, like any decision, there's uh, there's a cost and a benefit to doing it, and you have to weigh the cost of doing something against what whether or not you think it's going to help you. Um, after we went test optional to Paul, I had to do a PR campaign with all sorts of groups who um, didn't understand the decision and were sort of upset by it. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the slides I had up was, you know, it's not the job of enrollment management to wreck the academic reputation of the university. It's not our goal because that would really just be stupid and counterproductive. Um, you know, because you, you look at every survey ever done since 1953 and students say, why, you know, why did you choose this college? You ask them that and they'll say the academic reputation of the institution, you know, or the academic quality or something along those lines. So wrecking that um, serves absolutely no purpose. Anyone who thinks that that's the reason we're doing something, it just needs to have their head examined. Mm -hmm. um, it's a matter of balancing trade-offs. And in fact, enrollment management, that's what we do. We're, we're balancing trade-offs all day. If you want um, more revenue, you admit more students from the lower end of the class who are willing to pay more. If you want higher test scores, you're going to lose diversity because you're sampling from a population that's largely Caucasian and Asian. Um, you know, find the sweet spot in the middle and pick a side and say, we're going to do this or we're going to do that and we're going to let the chips fall where they may. Mm -hmm. there, there's just not a lot of, um, not a lot of people who are willing to risk their mortgage, I've found, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, to move venture into the unknown. And, you know, it's, if you're going to do it, it's important that your president, your provost, your board of trustees, everybody is on board with it and understands the talking points and really understands the research and why you did what you did. But, uh, you know, at the very minimum, to wrap this all up, you should be doing the research on your own institution, your own students, mm -hmm. your own um, your own admissions processes to see whether tests help you or not. Right. If they don't, cut it out. Is there any truth to the uh, the the concept that you know a test optional school actually? you know, benefits because they are cutting out, you know, lower scoring f students from their from their enrolling student class. And so, you know, potentially their uh, average score goes up as a result because the ones that are submitting yeah. are the ones that are at or above the, the average. Yep. And so, again, if you're at only 20 percent of your class test optional, that's probably going to happen. Your, your test score averages are going to rise a little bit. But one of the interesting things I did at DePaul um, was to take everybody in the bottom 20 or 25 percent of the class and see just take out take out their test scores and calculate the test scores on the top three quarters or 80 percent of the class and um, it didn't change the test scores by a point mm -hmm. um, what's interesting though is super scoring <laughs> something you can do easily and that everybody's on board with and um more than willing to uh, think about as an appropriate practice, raise them something like eight tenths of a point just by doing that. Mm -hmm. Because so many students test multiple times and if you take the best section from each one and combine them, um, you know, you'll be in good shape. And that's a point on the ACT, not the SAT. I'm still trying to sh shift my mindset from Midwest to West Coast. <laughs> in more ways than one. In more ways than one, yes. Uh, the trees in Oregon, are the biggest damn trees I've ever seen in my life. And I've never <laughs> been to Calif Northern California yet, oh, so I know that'll blow my mind. But, yeah. you know, these are these are trees that it's like, wow, that's a big tree. I got to say, I, uh, I miss I miss big trees. Yeah. They're in uh, New York City. Do you think that these scores will ever really go away? I mean, that the, the extent, I mean, I, I feel like 
I don't know if it's a function of just kind of getting to know more people like you and, 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 you know, seeing that obvious, but also that there's definitely some upward movement always in the number of schools that are going test optional. Yeah. And obviously there's, you know, the, the, the schools that are, you know, higher in the sort of selectivity spectrum are starting to do that. Obviously Chicago, Rochester, yeah. you know, schools like that, but, um, that it, it, it all seems to be kind of trending that way. But uh, I mean, it just seems like such a facet of, of who we are and what we do. Like, do you right. remember your essay? SAT score. I didn't take the SAT, but I took the ACT. And you remember your ACT? I do. Right. So this is like you yeah. stamp. What was it? Uh, well, so it was the test before it was centered. It was a twenty-eight. I got a 26, 27, 28, 31. Wow. My four subsections. Yeah. 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 And um, that was, you know, so I I think 28 in those days was 95th percentile nationwide. And I was always a good standardized test taker Mm -hmm. and a pretty lousy student. (laughs) I I mean, I really, you know, and I didn't do well in college. I wasn't a great student in college. I graduated with a 3.0 or something. Where'd you go to college? Um, I did my freshman year at Iowa State, ran out of money. And um, came back and worked in a factory for a year and a half, thinking I might do that for the rest of my life. And then decided one day after talking to the guys who were nice guys, but weren't educated, that I was going to be educated even if I ended up working in a factory the rest of my life. So Mm -hmm. I went back to college at Loris College, which was my parents grew up on Loris Boulevard in Dubuque, Iowa. And so it was literally right across the street. I mean, I, I played baseball on their fields when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And then we get kicked off by Doc Kammerer, who would tell us we couldn't play there. But we played baseball all summer on the Loris College campus. What kind of factory was it? Uh, it was called Frommelt Industries, a big, big company in Dubuque. And um, if you've ever seen a truck back into a loading dock, there are these big foam pads that go around the door to seal the weather seal between the the space at the back of the truck and the dock so a refrigerated factory or one that handles certain types of food it, by law is required to have them mm-hmm. and so i made those mm-hmm. you took a, a a two by eight a 10 or a 12 you got some foam that was pre-cut to the specifications you glued the foam to the board you um pulled the cover on glued that and nailed it down put them in a box and shipped them off. Sounds like you could hop back on the line today. Oh, you know, um, the great thing about it was I knew, I, I learned how to swing a hammer. So I'm really good at hammers still. Yeah. You know, it's a skill that like riding a bike, once you learn, you never forget. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was it was interesting, but it was kind of tedious and I was <laughs> sucking uh, glue fumes all day. Yeah, that's probably, and it, you and want I, to avoid that. I'm sure it wasn't the best kind of glue. You know, this was the 70s, so mm-hmm. yeah. So I went back and glue. got my degree. And for me, um, you know, just going to college was a big deal. My, my parents, as I say in the Tough book, I, I wasn't just a first-generation college student. I was a first-generation high school student. Neither of my parents uh, went to formal education beyond the eighth grade. Mm. And so, um, you know, like a lot of that generation, my dad was a World War II vet. Um, What they wanted was better and more for their children. And so, and by that time, you had to graduate from high school. It was a law. Um, And so I just, I went to college kind of on my own. No one ever told me I should, no one in my family Mm -hmm. told me I should go. Um, My brother, who was 10 years older, was being recruited by Dartmouth to play football and um, wound up at the West Des Moines Institute of Technology, a two-year Votech school. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if that's why he turned out to be a Republican or not, but if he'd gone to Dartmouth, he probably would have ended up that way anyway, <laughs> I guess. Uh, do you? Th- so what do you think? Do you think, I mean, because we, we, we bear these, uh, these, these marks, you know, you've got your 28. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, are, are we ready to give these things up for good? I would hope so. Uh, well, actually, what I hope would be that there would be a test that could really measure something of importance, a standardized test that everybody would take, and um, it would tell you something important about that student. I mean, this isn't a, you know, rocket science, or are there, are there other, other countries that, that, that have sort of national standardized tests, but I mean, they're, they're probably not set up exactly the same way that you're maybe theorizing. Well, um, they're not standardized tests. Okay. They're, they're content and academic achievement tests. Mm-hmm. They really measure what you've learned. Mm-hmm. So if you take an O level or an A level in Great Britain, um, it's measuring whether you know anything about the English poets or um, um, chemistry or um, physics or economics or whatever it is you're studying. It's really content-based. And um, that's a pretty good way to determine 
you know, whether you've learned the, the material. Standardized tests aren't those kind of tests. In fact, um, the inventor of the standardized tests, Frederick Kelly, said that they were designed to measure lower order thinking skills. Um, so really, they were designed to weed out the people at the bottom rather than to identify the people at the top. And that's the, the fundamental difference um, between them today. Even Carl Brigham, who was instrumental in, who was a eugenicist and instrumental in um, the, the development of the SAT, later said it was a horrible mistake to do this. I shouldn't have done it. And you shouldn't use these tests for what they're being used. Him and Oppenheimer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> was he was great regrets about careers? I mean, who doesn't have career regrets at one point? Right? Yeah, I mean, I fortunately nobody will let me near any plutonium, so I, I'm okay as far as that goes. But the do you um, and that's still the way that they work now to to, to weed out the people at the bottom. Well, um, they do that, but they do it on a scale or a measure that I don't think is fair. So so ACT especially loves to talk about students with a 10 and below on ACT. When in fact the guessing threshold on the ACT is about an 11. So they're really talking about students that not only don't know much of the content, but they're not even good guessers. Um, and so they talk, and it's interesting to see that, you know, the chance of a 2.5 with an 11 is still something like 31% in American colleges, which you know is maybe more a damnation of our educational system than it is anything else. Um, it, it's just, the way we do college admissions is just, um, doesn't make a lot of sense. It perpetuates inequities, it perpetuates wealth, it perpetuates um, the myth of the meritocracy. Here, there's a guy at the University of Wisconsin named Harry Brighouse who gave the best talk I've ever seen about admissions, um, even though he doesn't practice admissions. He was comparing the American system to the British system. And um, he said, we make, we equate merit with achievement. And the two are very different things. And what we call achievement is only, only happens because someone invests in you but we call it a meritocracy. It's really an achievement-docracy, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. And people who are given more chance to achieve, achieve more. Mm -hmm. So what are our options? That's a great question. And I don't, I have to admit, when I'm critical of standardized testing, I don't have a great answer other than four years in high school is far more similar to four years in college than anything else we have in this student record. And that's really the thing that can and should matter the most. And, and yes, there are differences among schools. <clears throat> and yes, if you pull people into um, a big model, those differences tend to go away because you have students from high achieving schools who perform poorly and students from quote unquote low achieving schools who do really well. So yeah, there's a difference in school, but it's also a difference in funding and you know, our our school systems are funded by tax bases, mm -hmm. which are based on property values, which are based on um, how much you pay for your house, which is based on how much money you make. Mm -hmm. And so again, if you wanted to design a system that kept people where they are, our system of funding schools would be one of the first things you do. Well, I got an idea. I think I, you know we're seeing a lot of uh, pretty amazing activism from young people yeah um these days you know they're the parkland students yep. there's greta was just in my hometown the other day yeah um and it's it's just it's absolutely amazing and inspirational and uh i think that they should all call a national strike you know um something like that would be great i think um and greta i mean is there any better person to say, I don't give a damn about what people think about me than a 16 year old kid who has autism and maybe some compulsive disorders? I mean, that's who you want leading that charge, right? She's like an iron, iron goddess. Uh, what a great kid. Yeah. And yeah, could you, could you imagine being 16? Standing up in front of crowds like that and being so eloquent, and I tried. They wouldn't let me in. <laughs> yeah, it's just astonishing. But but what's really gratifying to me is um, um, every time a college goes test optional, you'll look at the student newspaper, and that almost without exception, 
the student newspaper is 100% behind it. And student newspaper editorials calling for the elimination of tests. Kids are smart. They know. They know it's all BS. And, um, you know. Well, they're maybe. the ones that have to do it. Yeah, exactly. We all, right. you know, establish a process that says, you do this. Yeah. And it feels a little bit like hazing. Like, uh, yeah, I would. Agree. I went through it, so you know you're going to go through it. But but so far removed are they from the experience? You know, I have still pledged that I'm going to take the SAT, and I still haven't done it. But that I feel like that's the thing too is that you know we're so far removed from that experience. Yeah. And and it and and I mean, ask anybody in this convention center, would you like to take the SAT again? They would all rather you know yeah. um, stick lemon juice in their eyes and yeah. you know bash themselves with the hammer that you carry around because you're so good at, 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 at hammering now. Yeah. Um, but it, and so we foist this stuff upon the kids. And, and so, yeah, of course, they're the ones that are pumped about this, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And they, they should be. And I hope they're very successful going forward. It's um, it's a not a great world. We the baby. I'm, I'm you're not a baby boomer, but I'm a baby boomer. And, you know, I don't think we left the world for our kids that we thought we were going to leave. I, I think we've left more of. I think we've left a worse version of the world in some sense than we probably should have. George Carlin's got a great bit on baby boomers, so I'll find it. I'm going to plug uh, in right that. here. It's yeah. pretty, pretty yeah. sensational. The baby boomers, whiny, narcissistic, self-indulgent people with a simple philosophy. Give me it, it's mine! <laughs> Give me that, it's mine! These people were given everything. Everything was handed to them. And they took it all, took it all. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and they stayed loaded for 20 years and had a free ride. But now they're staring down the barrel of middle-aged burnout, and they don't like it. They don't like it, so they've turned self-righteous. And they want to make things hard on younger people. They tell them, abstain from sex. Say no to drugs. As for the rock and roll, they sold that for television commercials a long time ago. So they could buy pasta machines and Stairmasters and soybean futures. Soybean futures. I was going to ask you about the DOJ investigation stuff, but that feels like its own. I don't know. Do you think we've got 15 minutes? Do you think we could yeah, I think, talk about it? Well, or is it too I, sure. Sprawling? It's your 15 minutes, however you want to waste it. <laughs> um, well, you've already wasted 45 talking to me, yeah, which yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm very sorry for. That's okay. Um, I did it on purpose. So yeah. we're here at NACAC, and there is a, yeah. a lot of hullabaloo happening uh, now around the fact that some of the guidelines are pretty much liable to get inevitably will be changed sure. uh, as a result of an investigation that, that the yeah. uh, Department of Justice has implemented along these lines of uh, antitrust right. activity and behavior. Can you like give the broad overview of what the what the complaint is and what's what's asked, being asked to, to get changed? Yeah. So um, imagine if um, you told Isuzu or Subaru, let's say a car dealer, Am I dating myself? Is yeah, Suzu? I remember okay. those. Subaru. Uh, you went to the Subaru dealer and you said you shook hands with the car dealer and said, "Yeah, I'll be back this afternoon. I'm going to buy this car." And then there was a national. All the car dealers got together and said, "Well, if you've done that, you uh, that person, you can't go over to the Chevy dealer and negotiate anymore. You're done. Your history." Um, and that would be bad for consumers. Um, the car dealers might say what we're really trying to do is protect the, the car consumer from making a bad decision or buyer's remorse, and that wouldn't fly. You know? Or if all the airlines got together and said, um, we can't sell discount tickets a week before taking off. Even if we have 50 empty seats on that plane, we can't sell them for 100 bucks a piece because that's bad for business. Um, and that's what the DOJ says NACAC is doing by prohibiting, for instance, um, colleges from continuing to recruit once a student says, I'm going someplace else. So they submit their deposit on May yeah. 1st, and yeah. the guidelines currently say, that's it, deal done. Yeah. Can't recruit those kids to yeah. try to change their mind and go someplace else over the summer. Yeah, the student can come to you and say, I'm having second thoughts, but you can't recruit them. You can't send them a letter and say, for instance, we're sorry you're going to our competitor, um, but if we upped our scholarship offer by $10,000, would that change your mind? Can't do that. And the DOJ says that's bad for consumers. And in fact, it probably is in some way, that, that sort of an intentional restriction on trade. And that's really what it is. So anytime companies get together and 
create a set of guidelines that protects their financial interests or their ability to sell things or limits the ability of a competitor to behave in a market in a certain way, the DOJ is going to say that's anti-competitive and anti anti it's not legal. People are pretty freaked out about yeah. what the, you know, new world order is going to yeah. look like after these rules change. Do you sure. think they've got some valid reason to be? Uh, I think so. Um, so this summer, knowing that NACAC couldn't or wouldn't enforce anything, there were some colleges I know of who did exactly that. You know, went out to their non-deposited students and said, we have 20000 more dollars for you right now if you commit to us. And um, some of those students took it up. And some of the institutions who felt that bite were kind of annoyed by that. Um, but of course, they would have been free to match that offer if they wanted to. They just chose not to, or selectively chose not to. Um, and it's not that anybody who's been doing this 20 years is going to suddenly get the itch to start recruiting students after May 1st. Um, but there's going to be a college or two or 10 or 20 who are 50 students short on May 1st, and a president or a board of trustee member who's going to say, uh, you, if you want to keep your job, you need to get 50 more students by the fall. Um, and don't tell me anything is illegal or unethical because it's not. And you do whatever you need to do to get that class. And that's where the cracks in the system will start showing up, I think. I don't, I don't think big changes right away will happen. But there will certainly be something around the periphery. So what, under the current guidelines, would have happened to a school like that that chose to kind of act in that behavior anyway, act that, in that way anyway? That's the really interesting thing is that um, NACAC has very little teeth. I mean, they can, they can drum you out of the organization, I guess. They can keep you from attending national college fairs. But national college fair, it's not the 70s anymore, right? You don't need to go to national college fairs to generate interest. And in fact, if you look at the data, very few students learn about a college at a national college fair. So it's, it's the attempt to solidify or generate additional interest or answer questions or you know, add a human component to the element. I can buy the name of almost every high school graduate in the country right now if I want to. I don't need NACAC to do that. I don't need them to sanction it. Um, um, and so NACAC's ability to do anything to me is really has been limited for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that people are even aware of that. Yeah. I think people have thought of that. You wrote a blog post about, you know, what a, what kinds of things might change in behavior yeah. uh, as a result of this. What are some of those, what are some of those uh, prognostications of yours? Well, I think, oh gosh, people ask me about stuff I write all the time and I kind of like forget it. It's in there, man. You know, it's in there. You just gotta, uh, yeah. So one of the things, around. one of the things uh, uh, that I wrote about that has people really freaked out is, Early decision, and for listeners who don't know what early decision is, it's a binding early action plan. If you get admitted early under early decision, <clears throat> you have to go to that college, presumably. Have to, in quotes. Um, and I would say colleges, are, and I, when I say colleges, I mean colleges that have ED, um, who are usually the top of the food chain in higher education, um, will say, guess what, you applied ED, with no financial aid, um, you've been admitted, your first year's deposit of full tuition is due within 10 days. And it's non-refundable, unless you die or something. Um, and, you know, colleges will extract their own sort of ways of enforcing um, deposits um, on students and enforcing behavior on students that the students might not find palatable. Mm -hmm. um, I think at some point there will be some sort of mechanism where colleges begin to collaborate and share data on admitted students and um, deposited students. And we know some of them already do that. And I don't know that the DOG has ever come down on that um, or whether they will, but um, I'm gonna send them all my deposits to a central clearinghouse. Um, my competitor is gonna send all their deposits. And if we find that the student has deposits active at two places, um, they're going to have to withdraw one or the other. Why did you know? Why do why did why do you think colleges felt compelled to keep the uh, uh, Subaru purchaser from going to Isuzu next door um, for their own benefit? 
But what is it about the what is it about the the about this marketplace? You know that that makes it so. That's what the DOJ wants to know. What what makes us special? And and the colleges and NACAC have not been able to come up with anything compelling enough to make the DOJ go away. Do you think there is anything compelling enough? Um, do you think it is as special as they've been operating? Well, I think what we do is look at student development and we paint with a really broad brush because there are some percentage of 17-year-olds who are, um, you know, they're going to have buyer's remorse. There are some students who are 17 who are rife with stress. There are some students who are 17 who, um, um, you know, whatever the issue is. You can't really take the college experience back to the shop either if it breaks on you or something, right? right? Yeah, but, but we paint with a pretty broad brush and say those students need to be protected. The reality, of course, is that when we're talking about 18-year-olds who apply to college right out of high school, go to one college for four years and graduate, is maybe 20% of the entire college graduate population in the U.S. So we get all worked up about it because it's what we see. But there are colleges that are not anywhere near the NACAC conference, like Metropolitan State in Denver, for instance, or um, LaGuardia Community College in New York City. Or I've heard um, of that place. I've heard of that place. Um, or um, you know, who knows what it would be? Johnson County Community College in Kansas. Yep. Um, or um, you know, a place like Briarcliff College in Sioux City, Iowa. Right, who have a lot of non-traditional students who might be starting college at age 30. Um, those people are not going to be affected by this at all. It's not you, you make your application in your senior year, you decide by May 1st, and then you go off in the fall. Mm -hmm. Very different experience. Mm -hmm. so, so what we see is a tiny sliver of the college-bound population, and we think that's we generalize that to the whole population. Uh, everywhere, with everything. Right, right. of course. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything I didn't ask about John that you want to, you know, just sort of say on the, on the record? Oh, well, for, for the good of the order, you know, I think people who know me know that I'm uh, maybe one of the most uninteresting people you will ever encounter mm -hmm. in your life. Mm -hmm. um, and I have these little flashes that I put on Twitter or on Facebook or in my blog where people seem to find it interesting. Yeah. But I'm, it's I'm true. in person. I'm a lot less fun and a lot less interesting, but it's it's hard at this conference for me because people expect the the web me to show up, and it, this it's the real me that shows up here. Well, in fairness, you know the real you is wearing a shirt covered in pink flamingos, uh, and I look damn good in it. I and you. you know what you look is huggable, and yeah. I think you've been accosted. Um, by people here who just really want to get their arms around they this guy. Hug, they want to hug me because for some reason, I don't know why, I, if I were looking at me, I would not want to hug me. I mean, I'm not a hugger anyway, but if I were a hugging person, I would not say John is a guy I want to walk up to and hug. Okay, it's well. just not that. I mean. No, we cannot have a hug, Devin. Okay. I'm sorry. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. Well, all right. Whatever. Yeah. We got the conversation. You know, I mean, and that is an oral, A-A-U-R-A-L hug. You know yes. what I mean? Uh, John Buck. Buck. You can say it any way you like because there are factions Brack within the family. Birkenstock. Who don't spell it the same way and who don't pronounce it the same way. Yeah, but I mean, names matter, bro. I don't, you know, I don't think they do. I, and I know, <laughs> I know there's a, there's a um, sort of uh, movement now about, you know, encouraging teachers to spend extra effort to get to learn the names of their students. Mm -hmm. And I think certainly from a human standpoint, that's important and that's valuable. But you just you can't be bothered. But it didn't, it never bothered me. To learn your up. own name. No, it never bothered me. Um, it never bothers me when people look at my name and have heard it 50 times and can't pronounce it. I don't care about that stuff. You pronounce it, however... Yeah, so it's, How do you it's Bachenstead. Bach, yeah, yeah. You say like the D, not the T. Bachenstead. Yeah. So okay. it's not Beethoven. It's Bachenstead. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. That's a good one. Yeah, the relatives in New Vienna, Iowa. I think we're. I think they're coming to get us, staff. God. Good God. The sirens. It's are an air raid siren. Yeah. yeah we're, um, the the family in New Vienna, Iowa, where my my ancestors grew up, 
um, say Beckenstead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the reason is the second letter of our name was O with an umlaut mm -hmm. in German, which is Ur. Mm -hmm. And so the, it's really pronounced Birkenstedt. Um, and you either have to take the umlaut out, which mm -hmm. makes it Bachenstedt, mm -hmm. or you put the en, which make it Birkenstedt. But um, we're sort of weird in that we have the en and we still say Bachenstedt. So how, 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 how do your children pronounce it? They say Bachenstedt. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, the, 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 it'll endure the and, name. And um, I really don't care. Uh, you call me whatever you want. <laughs> Well, uh, just not late to dinner. Yes, exactly. And uh, thanks for doing this, man. I know you're, uh, you're you're under. You know, you got you got you got shit to do here. Um, yeah. And uh, I it's appreciate great, taking Henry. the time. Thank you to do it. Did <laughs> you call me? I called you, Henry. Henry. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I'll go with that. Okay. Um, thanks, buddy. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. He's such a nice man. And for the record, even though John makes claims not to know how they are used, standardized tests are weighted at 7.75% in the U.S. News Rankings calculation. That ain't nothing. And if any of you haven't at least read what the U.S. News publishes about how they construct the rankings and thought about what is but also what is not there, I strongly encourage you to do that. I've included a link uh, in the show notes for you to check that out. It's a quick read and uh, extremely educational. And while, yes, there are over a thousand test optional schools out there, if, but most likely when, John's new spot, Oregon State, goes test optional, it will join the ranks of very few schools like it, in that there simply are not very many large public research universities that don't use these tests for admission. Uh, we've got Temple, George Mason, and now the Indiana Hoosiers just announced that they're test optional uh, the other day. But yeah, when you think about it, there, there aren't that many that don't use these tests. If you've been paying attention, you'll likely have heard about the fact that the University of California system is strongly considering dropping their requirement of the SAT or ACT for their admissions process, which would be a massive, massive tectonic shift in the landscape. Hard to overstate how massive have I used the word massive yet. These organizations, speaking of massive, the ACT and the College Board are enormously influential across the national and uh, also international educational landscape. You can do a little research and find out that they are very profitable nonprofits. To hear their side of the argument, the tests are, are, are an instrument, right? It's their use that is problematic. And I think John laid out a bunch of ways they're used that doesn't match with their intended purpose. But I really think that in the name of taking better care of our kids, we should get rid of these things as they are. They generate truly crippling stress and anxiety. They force kids and families to prioritize the wrong things about college and permanently stamps them with a score that deeply impacts their self-esteem relative to their peers at a really, really delicate phase of their lives. I stand as a testament to the fact that, yes, you can get over having been stamped with a score and lead a successful life, but still, in this period of time, it's, it's a lot for these kids. Not to mention they're a barrier to... Uh, poor and underrepresented minority students who don't take the test, have no money to prep for it, uh, or don't know how to get a fee waiver to apply, haven't heard about Khan Academy or ACT Academy or all kinds of things. And for more on all of that, please listen to my interview with Akil Bello a few years back. And uh, important to note, of course, that it's mainly colleges who use these tests. And so a gigantic part of the responsibility rests with them, which is usually to say with the presidents and regents and boards of trustees, because I know many admissions leaders have and will run right into that buzzsaw at their institutions, even though they bring a well-reasoned argument to the table to ditch these exams. But as I proposed to John, I love to imagine something like a student-led boycott of these exams. What if thousands and thousands of kids got to a point of realization that moved them to action uh, at a massive scale? And, and, and what if they realized that uh, as University of California Golden Bear Mario Savio, another college student activist from the aforementioned baby boomer generation, uh, as he put it back in 1964 during civil rights protests at Berkeley, what if these kids realized that there is a time when the, when the operation, operation of the machine, of the machine becomes so odious? makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. 
and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop, and you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. And what if they stopped being subjected to this? They just selected, they opted out. We're not doing this anymore, okay? We've, we've had enough. And all the adults who forced this upon our nation's youth were brought to heal and forced to change as a result of this kind of direct action. It would be beautiful. Every time I share this idea, uh, with the exception of John here, I am almost always uh, met with some sort of laugh and, uh, yeah, right, and that's hilarious, and that will never happen. I mean, because, let's be real, maybe not. It probably, probably not. It probably won't happen. But what if it did? What if it did? So, think about it. In the class of 2019, 2.2 million people took the SAT. About 10% of those were from overseas, so still majority in this country. If the colleges that require tests did nothing in response, which is to say nothing in support of this would-be student-led movement that exists in my brain, uh, then all of those kids would simply not be able to apply to those schools because they don't meet the testing requirement because they didn't take the test and they, they don't have scores to submit. And so therefore they would only be able to apply to test optional schools. Uh, unfortunately, this is probably absolutely untenable for most American families for a lot of reasons. As I hope most of you know, most kids in this country don't go to highly selective colleges by a long shot. Most kids go to colleges that admit the majority of applicants. However, most non-selective public schools still require the exams. Even if they don't require uh, that you get a high score, they still require that you submit a score. So if your plan uh, is maybe to go to your hometown or a home state college because you know it's a great school and or uh, it's the most affordable option for your family and in many ways maybe the option, then taking this risk means risking access to college, period. That's not okay. To say nothing of the families who have their sights set on the super highly selective schools that still require tests, please forget it. And so you see how important these tests are in terms of access to college, period, for absolutely everybody in this country that wants to go. If you're gonna go to a four-year college, you pretty much have to take these tests. I'll emphasize that again, a four-year college. You have to take these tests. They're extremely influential when it comes to the behaviors of families, colleges, and governments. What other similar kinds of organizations can you even think of that have this scope of influence over our society? The Catholic Church? The Red Cross? But one of the things that John has said before when it comes to changing our broken admissions process, it isn't going to come from within the industry, certainly not when it comes to system-wide changes that make a real difference. Some external force will need to be responsible for making changes. I don't know about you, but I trust America's high school students to advocate for the right thing and to be that productive external force more than the departments of education or justice or the Supreme Court. I just wish that, uh, that we all did. So, I don't know. Think about it. It's probably a crazy and stupid idea, but... Um, that accounts for the majority of the kind that I that I tend to have. Uh, anyways, thank you guys for listening. I am done. I'm going to shut up. Thanks for being around for episode 40. Hey, here's to 40 more, huh? Uh, more soon, everybody. Thanks again and spread love. <laughs>